Hello everybody, my guest today is Adam Carney, therapeutic and trauma-based mentor and director of intensive support services and Elevate Mentoring. This is the first award I'm sure will be many conversations with Adam. I believe we only just scratched the surface on all he has to share. Today we talk about mentoring, we talk about personal growth, support systems and much more. It was such a great episode today, I really enjoyed talking to Adam. He has such an inspiring story and such a great outlook on life. To keep up to date with all new episodes, please hit that subscribe button and you can also watch the full video of today's episode over on YouTube. And without further ado, let's dive right into the conversation with Adam Carney. I really wanted to reach out and it was good that we connected again because uh, I've seen a little bit of what you've been doing online uh a big change in direction for yourself across the, yep. the last couple of years uh so what's the main i guess thing you're doing right now yeah so i guess to get to talk about what i'm doing now or even about my life it's best to talk about what i am doing now then talk go back to how i got to that right that's what i'd like to do um so at the moment i've got a couple of companies uh one's just a mentoring service um the ins and outs of that is I work with mainly young men. So well, when I say young men, boys as well. I've got 11-year-olds, 10-year-olds up until 20. Yep. Um, it's a trauma-informed mentoring service. So <laughs> it's really based on uh, my education and lived experience around trauma and complex trauma um, and the effects of complex trauma, I guess, on individuals, especially young adults, if we don't get on top of those traumas quickly yep. um so that's the work i do with with my mentoring service um it's sort of in the community basically psychosocial counseling um giving young people a different way to look at life because a lot of them have a, a very skewed view because of their trauma yep. of what they should be doing and how they should be living um and then i've just started a disability support service as well so basically i'll provide support workers to your everyday disability support it could be uh, wheelchair uh, autism mental health um, intellectual disabilities basically the whole the whole uh, spectrum of disabilities yep um, that's just a little fun one where i oversee i enjoy overseeing the support workers um, because i get them to do the things the way i know works um, the way I've sort of got into these two companies is I had a background of working with, um, I was actually at a Lambie Care, which is an out-of-home care service, uh, working with kids who have been removed from their family environments yep. and put into residential homes. Um, and working in that environment, I sort of figured out that couldn't get a great deal of uh, progress with the clients because of red tape, um, policies, procedures of the government, DCJ, um, things like that. Yep. They do their best. They do their best in them areas, but unfortunately, um, the way the the world is at the moment, there's just way too many, way too many kids and young people, you know, with mental health disorders, trauma, yep. poor parental, you know, upbringings, mm. um, you know, domestic violence, all that stuff. So, yeah, to go and do it myself, it was more than I could do the way the things the way I wanted to do it. Yep, uh, through my what I learnt growing up with trauma. And growing up in a 
you know, different environment than say the norm. Yep. Um, and then what I learned through doing a university degree around uh, human services and social work. So, yep. um, and some education and a diploma around community services. And so it sort of all, f- well, sort of like a, to me, Brendan, now looking back, right from where I am now, it's funny when people talk about how there'll be a time in your life, if you go and look for it, if you go and actually do the work and try and figure out why you are the way you are, it'll, it'll all make sense to you one day. Yep. And now with everything that's happened to me in my life and with different careers and different things and it all, I truly believe it was pushing me to do what I do now. Yep. Because um, I finally found that job that feels like I'm not really at work when I'm doing my work because yep. I'm, I really enjoy it. Um, and at the moment, we've got another thing up and coming. Uh, we're going to do some uh, like a sort of like a speed dating slash matchmake matchmaking for for um, people who uh, have NDIS plans who have disabilities of all types. I don't care what disability. We mm-hmm. don't, you know, we don't um, care about that. Yep. You know, everyone's equal in my eyes. Um, so we're, I've had an idea of doing a speed dating night. So I've got that sort of in the works at the moment. Um, which will sort of give a bit of a quality to to a lot of the people that I work with because that's a, a gap in the market that I've sort of found working in the, that disability space. Definitely, and I, and I can imagine uh, the people in those positions, it could be quite isolating for them uh, and not having a formal avenue to be able to connect with other people. Uh, I would imagine only would compound a lot of their other challenges. Yeah, you're right. That's And that's a good way to put it too because what happens is they get stuck in that cycle. They, they, they really struggle and find it challenging to find friendships. Um, and I suppose the best example, I won't, I can't share names obviously because it's um, private, but I've got a young client, uh, 20, and autism, level one, a uh, couple of other diagnoses. Um, but he, he's, his biggest challenge at the moment is he's got no friends, hmm. not one friend. Okay, so when I came into his life as a, as a mentor, um, he basically had no one around him. Yeah. Okay. So, talk, and I, I was talking to a few. I had a few other. I've had. A, I've got another nineteen-year-old male who's got um, autism and also uh, intellectual disability. Same thing. No friendship groups. Really struggles in that community space because even when he enters a community with myself, which is every Wednesday, he still even can struggle in that space. Sure. So, if you can imagine these people trying to navigate the dating scene or not even uh, romantic relationships also just relationships in general around um you know male to male female to female non-binary non-binary whatever whatever you like okay so it's to the idea was to sort of create an area and a safe space Mm. for these vulnerable people in the community to feel safe and to feel they can come in there and meet people in a safe environment non-judgmental but it's going to open up a whole new world to these guys because they're going to have hopefully you know, they can meet friends, possible relationships. And then from there, hopefully other things can blossom, like different work uh, work experiences or mm. um, community experiences, just different friendship groups, right? Finding oh, different hobbies. 100% even. and making those new connections. And uh, going back to just your point there, I, I just feel like the whole relationship thing, like you said, whether it be romantic or whether it just be friendships in general, is a really difficult path to navigate for most people and i really notice a lot maybe not in your younger years as much when you're you're coming through school and you just you you, you 
piggybacking off the back of other systems like education or uh, university or these types of things. But even as adults, you commonly hear that people are really struggling to find like-minded people, uh, connecting, reaching out, and they have all these surface level, I guess, connections, but they're not really themselves. They're not deeply connected uh, and they're not really, I guess... When, when you do have those things, it's often by accident and you don't even know. So there's no purposeful framework that's been given to us, no. even as people, to go, how do you make friends? How do you make relationships? Like if like you ask anyone about their relationship, it's like, oh, how'd you end up? And it's like, oh, I, I don't really know. I just I, I came across this person. There's no purposeful thinking behind the action. So if you ever get caught in that position of not being able to make friends, not being able to find a relationship, it's really difficult because no one actually knows how to do it. No. <laughs> and, they don't. It and it's never been taught to us. No. It's no. just been not unless you had the, the, the right parents get as you were brought up. Exactly. Um, yeah. Which is, you know, another whole topic in itself, right? hundred um, percent. But yeah, it is. And I guess it's um it's not just as I said, it's not just about them having re- re- opposite sex relationships or same sex relationships. Mm. And people say to me, well, why don't you just do an app on a, mo- on a mobile phone? Yeah. And I'll say that completely defeats the purpose of what we're trying to do. Okay? Yeah. There's Tinder. There's all those things. Those, anyone can get on those. You don't have to have a disability. You don't have anything, right? Yeah. But that doesn't give them the, the opportunities to go and enter the community. Yeah. And the way I see it, it gives them, it works on their capacity building, which is a big thing for, for, for disability clients around it forces them to, you know, have a date in the calendar that they have a have a, a dinner on. Yeah. Okay. It's, they've got to find a nice outfit that, um, you know, I, I like to use a number scale when I explain to my clients what what outfits would be would be appropriate for that kind of thing. So they've got to go and you know find some dress. You know what's appropriate for the, for a date night or a matchmaking night. Then they've got to organise lifts. They've got to organise support workers. They have to come. They have to overcome that fear and challenges and anxiety about entering a room where they're probably not going to know anyone um, or they might know a couple of people and there's going to be unusual people in there that they've never met. So it's quite overwhelming. Mm. Right? So, um, and, and I think that overwhelm is actually super powerful and that's what helps you stretch. That's what helps you grow. Yeah. Uh, and that process is, and this is one of the, I guess, the challenges which I believe is online access is that it's too accessible yeah. versus, and then, and it's instant. So it's not, okay, I've got a speed dating event in two weeks time. I have to mellow and think and be slightly apprehensive. Yeah. Then I have to go pick a new outfit. I, I make sure that I'm looking as good as I can. Then I have to get myself there travel wise. Yeah. I, I, and all those times, like you said, you're overcoming this internal dialogue of not trying to put yes. yourself out of comfort. Yep. And then after that, you can assess and go, okay, I met some good people. I, I didn't really gel with that person. And you're not really thinking, oh, like, but you're thinking more as a positive assessment versus that could have happened instantaneously yes, exactly. on an app. And, and you're still at home in your pajamas. Exactly. Like, so, and the, and the problem with the apps. If you've got somebody who's has autism or intellectual disability, etc., or even just someone with anxiety, like like myself, right, for example, even just anxiety can stop people doing those things, right? So, 100%. an app takes takes all that away, but also takes away the real the real life scenarios too, mm. because you'll find that, especially, you know, I'm probably one that does this too. I've tried the dating apps, and 
I'll talk to people in there, but I never make that next step of going to meet them because it's like too much effort, mm. uh, haven't got time, anxiety around relationships, etc. So if you put that on top of all the people with disabilities or already have different challenges on their, themselves, yep. it's a lot to deal with. But what you'll find is the reason why I'm putting it on every month, every same place, same time, is to create that routine in that in them people's lives. Mm. Because then they, after three or four weeks of coming to that to that night, um, sorry, sorry, three or four months could be once a month, mm. they're going to start to feel comfortable in that space. Mm. So they, that's progress in itself. Yep. They've gone from not having any relationships, not having any friends, not having any where to go, okay, not having any social aspects of life. Yep. So every every once a month on a Tuesday night, they have they go to a, a nice pub, they have dinner, a couple of drinks, they meet new people, they get some education from myself around relationships, consent, around uh, questions, what to look for in when you when you're across from people in this dating thing, a lot of education around it. So. It's not just you turn up and you meet people. It's a it's a, it's a whole seminar of how to meet people and how to sort of conduct yourself in that space. But then it's also teaching them what to do after that night too, okay? So if you do like this person, then we work alongside the coordinators of that person or then person support people to make sure that they then have access to go and meet with that people that they click with in the community individually on their own. Yeah. Because then that's two people now that had no friends or had no relationships or had no connections that now have each other at least. Yeah, 100%. Right? So that's the idea of it. And you might find that they may just be friends, but they come back the next month and they do it again. The next minute they've got three or four friendship groups and then they take themselves out in the community on a on a weekday and have coffees or drinks or whatever, even if they're with their support workers. Yeah. They create them a, a sense of belonging and a community for those guys. Yeah. Because they do feel like they're outside of the, the, the social community a lot of the time. Yeah, and, and I think you hit the nail on the head there where you, you have to be that cornerstone in their routine that they know that they can turn up to and it's the same day, same time each month. Going to see the same people like yeah. as myself. Because ultimately, regardless on who it is, we're often at times not our best. Yeah. And if you're always trying to line up the best version of yourself with random dates and times and one-off events, it doesn't really work. No. And, and I'm assuming this is the some of the foundations in like, like even if it's religion or even if it's like any other support systems or even if it was like they're the same time, same time. Yep. It's like, so, all right, if this person, this month you couldn't get yourself to the right state of mind to make the effort, yes. doesn't matter. It's okay. We're there next month. Exactly. Here's some things that we're going to work on in between. And we're going to have that. Exactly. I wanted to come back to something you were talking about originally because it's something that interests me a lot is around the mentoring, uh, especially when you're making the point around your formal education combined with your past yep. personal experiences because from what I believe is that's the secret source in terms of actually mm. helping people because you would have run into people or had uh, people help you or attempt to help you or give advice or connect with people that have really strong formal education, but there's just something missing. Yes. And you don't buy into how they're putting together their ideas yeah. and you can tell that it's just this education model. Um, how do you find that the people you work with connect with you and why do you think that's different in terms of that hybrid mm. of the experiences? It's a good question. And that's the exact reason I went and did what I do now, right? So I guess to, you'll get, you're going to have to remind me of your question because I this this question is going to go on different tangents. Yeah, it's right? a bit, yep. Okay, so, um, and I'll forget what the original question was. So 
Um, basically, a way that the reason I did it is because go on, I, if I go back to my life, you just said it you know, throughout my life, right? And it wasn't until about I don't know. I started I started seeing a counselor and a psychologist around twenty two, twenty three for for anxiety and, and depression, but I never listened. Right? I sat in a room with he was probably sixty glasses. Didn't didn't have any understanding of of life. He'd just been an academic his whole life, right? Never connect with him. I then go and work in out of home care. I find the same problem, right? The kids in out of home care they don't connect with the, the psychologist. They can't connect with them. They sit across from them. A psychiatrist who I'm very good friends with, who owns um, Newcastle Psychiatry, and he, he even talks to me about this. How he asked me how I create that connection with with my clients, and it comes because I've lived it. And in, when, I, when I'm with my clients, I don't I use empathy and not sympathy. That's what they that's what they need, right? So when a client says to me, for example, um, oh, I, I, I was removed from home and I I was put into out of home care as a young child. A lot of response would be, oh, but that's okay, mate. You still had a roof over your head. You had great support workers. You had all this, right? That doesn't mean shit. Mm. <laughs> You're in out-of-home care. Your trauma is trauma, right? So instead of people trying to – that's what I was finding in that in that space. A lot of people just sort of disregarded it. It was whatever. So I wanted to do something that actually connected to the clients and got progress, right? And I'll give you the example, a perfect example on how – I connect with clients and how I get them to overcome their challenges. And it's just a short one because it's quite easy. I've um, got a client, he's 19, debilitated by anxiety, okay? He's a private client, great mum and dad. You know, they own a mining company, very, you know, good people. But the client just really struggles. He he, he struggles to leave the home without his family, without support, because he's just his anxiety just debilitates him, right? So he really wanted to start going to the gym. So these people have employed me for the first four weeks of me working with him. All I did was drive from his house at Patterson into the gym with him, talk to him, have a laugh, have a joke, get on his level and show him the gym for the first four weeks. We didn't even go in. Mm. Right? The importance of that drive was the best times to talk to, to young people are in cars because you're side by side. Mm. It's not face, eye to eye contact, you're talking, okay? Yeah. We just talk. We talk about football. We talk. I know. I find out what their likes are, right? Mm. So, if, you know, for example, this one he likes the UFC, he likes boxing, he likes weights. Very similar to myself, so he's very easy to connect with. Mm. And then I use that sort of motivation to, towards him to say, "Hey, mate!" Like, and I use my trauma-informed um, theories around that too to let him to sort of. And I explain to him about how I, my life, and so many things I struggle with and couldn't do, couldn't do, couldn't do. But eventually I did it and then I did it again and I did it again and I did it again. It got easier, all right? So just that psychosocial, building your self-esteem, that's the number one thing. You have to build these young people's confidence and self-esteem. So the fifth week I took that client and I said, hey, how about we walk into the gym and just show you around, right? This was six months ago, mind you. We go into the gym, he walks around, has a look. He's like, oh, yeah, he's very, very nervous, like, hmm like this, looking at everything, very hyper-vigilant, right? Mm. comes from trauma and anxiety. Um, you, knew, you knew everything that was going on around him. I, just, I, I spent like three minutes in there with him, let him see, but you left, went, got coffee. Six weeks, I finally got him to get into the gym. Right, We went upstairs, out of the way of everyone, um, you know, the gym up where we go. So out of the way, we just started to learn boxing a little bit. Now, when we first started, he could hardly lift a, a barbell, 
on a, on a bench press, he could hardly know even how to throw a punch, mm-hmm. right? He was so unconfident. He was so nervous. He would trip over things. He would forget things. He would be in the gym looking around everywhere, just, as I said, hypervigilant, scared even, right? Fast forward six months. Just little increments of different things. I'm just slowly putting in all that confidence into his mind through session after session after session. Mm. Talking him up, building his confidence, building his confidence. Telling him, hey, mate, look how far you have come from when you started. The first session I was with you, we couldn't even get out of the car. Now, yesterday, we did a five five-minute rounds of uh, boxing, right, flat out. Mm. And then we did an hour of weights where he did a PB on bench press and a PB on shoulder press. Nice. Six months. This is a kid that now when we're in the gym, doesn't look around, doesn't not nervous. He's talking to other people. He's now got several connections in that gym. Nice. Right, that I've connected him with on purpose. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he's come from being bedridden. His mum and dad reach out. I come to work with him. We spend four weeks just getting to know each other. Him, the number one thing in that period, he's building trust. Mm-hmm. He has to trust me. Yeah. That's the number one. He has to feel safe. He's got to trust me. Once I had that, which was through turning up each day, I was on time, talking to him. And when I'm with him, I'm on. Okay, so I'm like, as I said, the psychosocial, it's around. Don't think that who you were in the past means that you have to be that in the future. Mm-hmm. And I educate them on that by using my life as an example. Yep. Okay, the age of 30, I was homeless for two weeks. I've been in jail when I was 21. So all those things, I explain that to them. I'll say, mate, and now look where I am, okay? So that's how I sort of connect with them, give them the confidence that, hey, if I can do it, they can freaking do it. Mm. And then I'm just, I walk alongside them. I'm not in front of them. I'm not behind them. I'm beside them. So we, you know, when I'm with them, I'm, we're, we're constantly talking mental health, anxiety, just giving them strategies on how to, to overcome those things and just building their confidence and self-esteem up. That's basically all it comes down to. Mm. You build someone's self-esteem, Build someone's confidence. What comes from that is motivation, right? If someone hasn't got self-esteem and they've got no confidence, there's no motivation. There's no nothing. Yep. So that kid now he's flying, right? Yep. Absolutely flying. Um, linked him in with a psychologist, so he's got a psychologist. Linked him in with different other services. So then, if I'm not available, he's got all these other services to help him. Hundred hmm, percent. So a couple of things I take out of that, and the the first thing is, uh, I believe we all make this misjudgment on how far away change actually is yeah. uh, and it, we think that it's just this thing so far in the future that's so difficult where you're giving a great example there that in six months it can be a completely different framework that you're living in but when we're in our day-to-day even more so when it's challenging and we're not feeling our best self and we're getting lost in our own negative thoughts and patterns and you're trapped in all these patterns that you just you can't even envision a world that you can make it out of. No, exactly. And yeah. yeah, second to that, I really want to come back to the point on your pathway of using the gym and the the health system as a way to level yourself out. Um, coming from that background as well, uh, it's just such an amazing tool because there's so many. One, like you mentioned, the PR on the bench. Like you've got this easy metric that you can show progression exactly. on. Exactly. Uh, and additionally, that you can get people into such a state where you don't have time to think your negative thoughts. Like if you're doing five rounds, five oh, minutes, exactly. you don't have time to think of anything else. No. You're, you're in this pure flow state. You're in your body. And I think the benefit of even spending 
five minutes, 30 seconds, an hour once you get going, that you're just taking a break from your own self, mm. that relief yeah, alongside, obviously, all, all the positive hormones and yeah. But just that, yeah, that absence of negative thought just for a brief minute. Yeah, well, that's correct because you don't have time to think. Yeah. And then after it, your endorphins are so, you know, high. That's when you get the conversation out of them too around, um, is there anything been bothering you over the last week? We sort of debrief about the last week, any issues they may have had, and it's sort of half an hour of that counselling after the session, right? But you're 100% right about the bench press. I say to that to him all the time. I say, mate, when you first came in here, you couldn't do the bar. Now you're doing 80 kilos, okay? That's progress in itself in six months. But the way I like to look at progress, Brendan, this is the way I explain it to my clients. I said people are too quick to look at progress in a, like, in a short period. Mm. There's an old ph- philosopher that I, I listened to. Uh, forget his name, actually. but um, It said you should never look at progress in short increments, right? Mm. To look at progress, you really need to look at 10 years. Mm. And that's so true. If I look at my last 10 years, then you can really see the progress. Mm. Right? When you look at – but you can. it's also important to take progress from daily progress too. Yeah. It could be like for this example, I've given him a program where he has to be out of bed at 8 o'clock each day because he used to get stuck sleeping in. Mm. So, in fact, now he gets up at 8 o'clock easily every day, same thing, but we can actually show the progress. Mm. Right? So – but in saying that, there's also a lot of challenges to the progress of that. And when you said before, which is a very good point around how long does it take? Yeah. Small progress can happen fast, but the big progress yep. takes can take years. So I had a conversation with a brand new mother that I've just taken on. I've taken on their, their young young person. He's um, 15 from Botswana. Uh, lived in an orphanage actually in Botswana until the people, a couple in Maitland um, took him on board, like adopted him. So I'm working with him and um, he – I just totally forgot what track of thought then. I told you this was going to happen. <laughs> no, that's all right. So I'll come back to uh, especially the thought on um, – so, yeah, so you, you were talking about uh, the, the new client that you brought on and bringing about progress, the – Progress. That's the one. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So the mum – I've had this conversation with nearly every single client – parents that I've ever worked with, whether it was when I was working in out of home care or doing my own stuff. It can take years, mm. right? It can take, especially if you take into account trauma, mm. then you take into account disabilities, then you come uh, take into account time that's gone past. Yep. So someone may have had trauma and that trauma may have been for 20 years. Mm. But then you start working with these young people and the parents want, they want, they want their kid fixed like that. So that's what the, usually nearly every time I have a conversation with my parents after the first couple of weeks, it's like, hey, we need to get on the same page here. Yeah, and, and I'm assuming they just want to be free from the pain. A lot of the time. Or the, th- the, the perception of the child's pain. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of the time, though, a lot of the parents can be selfish and they want me to come in and actually just parent the child mm. and just tell them what to do, mm. right? So I had a conversation with a mother the other day and I explained. I said to her, oh, I asked you, do you you know what an iceberg is, right? Yep. So if you look at an iceberg, say if you're a kilometre away and you're looking at this massive iceberg, what do you see? Yeah, you see the top. The peak. You see the top of the iceberg. The top of the iceberg is the smallest part of the iceberg, right? So that the top of the iceberg above the water, this is why I explain it to all the parents, that is 
the child's behaviours or the young person's behaviours, whether it be violence, stealing, depression, self-harm, all that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's their, like, I just totally lost track of it. It always happens, see, because I, no, I went to jump to another one then. No, that's all right. So you've got the iceberg. You've that's got, right, the iceberg. You've got that's the point and then you've got say. the... Yeah. So the iceberg is... The top behaviors, I said to the mum, we need to dissolve underneath. Mm-hmm. Right? So underneath the water is it's massive. Like whatever you see at the top, it's probably a hundred times under the water. That's the trauma. Okay. The, the under the water is a trauma. Top is the behaviors. So I explained to the parents, we need to dissolve the tip of the iceberg up here, the behaviors. Right. And how do you I say, how do you dissolve the behaviors? How would you think you would dissolve the tip of the iceberg behaviours? Uh, well, first you'd need to identify them, um, see why they're problem- problematic, um, making sure that the person was aware of how they're problematic, yep. some understanding there, uh, and then breaking them down into some inter- incremental steps on each of the behaviours and see where you could get exactly. some Exactly. Yep, so scientific or, or psychology, look at it that way, yes. Yep. But what you're doing, you're dissolving underneath. Yep. As soon as you dissolve underneath... What happens to the baby behaviors at the top? They They're not there anymore. They disappear by themselves. Yeah, they disappear. So, and that's the whole. But do you know how long? And I explained to them how long do you think it's going to take to dissolve? Yeah, so it's years. Years. Yeah. Right. And when I say dissolve, it's never, ever, ever going to be dissolved. Yeah, and I'm assuming when everyone is just uh, trying to always supplement these and the peak of the behaviors out and sub them out, sub them in. And then they think that's the change. Yeah. When the regression happens, when the outbreak of the bad behavior comes back or it comes yes. back in a different way, yep. they're like, what, you were good? But they were never. It was a band-aid. It was yeah, a band-aid yeah. on it. So that's why I always say to my, my, my parents, it's like you've got to – because I work with the, the clients that I mentor, Brendan, I also work with the client, with the parents. Mm. So um, a lot of that's around trying to change the parenting styles trying to make them understand because a lot of these parents, you'd be surprised. And I, I suppose I shouldn't have been because I didn't know this stuff until now. But when I talk to the parents about what they're, about trauma and complex trauma, et cetera, they're like, we had no idea what that stuff was. Yeah. Right. So, for example, do you know what complex trauma is? I don't know. Yeah. So I never knew either. So this is why it's so important that we share this message. Complex trauma, I see that as the number one issue with everybody later on in life. That's complex trauma. Complex trauma is, say if you were to walk across the road there, Brandon, and you got hit by a car. That's trauma. Well, it's a one-off incident. So for a couple of months after, you might be nervous crossing the road, right? If you were lived in a home and every single night your dad would come in and beat you because you, for no reason, because he was an alcoholic, every single night. So then every single night you're scared because you're waiting for dad to come in. You're isolated, you're anxious, you're that's complex trauma because it happens every single night. So that complex trauma actually creates who you are mm-hmm. as a person. Because especially if you're getting complex trauma between the ages of one and seven, mm. when your brain pathways are getting blueprinted, yep. you're you're that um basically gonna be that hot, you're gonna be that hypervigilant, anxious, mm-hmm. trigger happy, reactive not being able to control your emotions, probably respond with violence or aggression when you get older. Yep. So you find a lot of people who are in domestic violence relationships when they get older, whoever whoever the perpetrator is, came from a complex trauma background. Mm. That's why intergenerational trauma 
complex trauma and trauma is the number one thing yep. when it comes to not even stepping away from even mentoring or anything, just for us, mm. right? The reason I can do what I do now is because I went back and I unpacked my whole life and I figured out why I am the way I am now. Yep. I would probably be in jail now if I didn't, say, nine years ago, start to unpack why I am the way I am mm-hmm. and figure out that and then put things in. Because once you've done that, right, it's like you, what you said about underneath with the icebergs. Once you've done that, you've figured out what it is, then you put a plan in place to overcome that, whether mm-hmm. it be psychology, OT, speech, mentoring, exercise, all those things, right? Yep. Um, and the, the, the reason I overcame those things, Brandon, and the reason I started my journey was because up until I was 32, I was a deadbeat. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to have to sell things to make money. I was homeless when I was 30, couldn't hold down a job. Um, I was violent, um, aggressive, just didn't care about anything. I was, did, did silly things, criminal things, and not not on a bad way, but just I didn't know any different, right? Mm-hmm. wasn't till when I was 32, I think, around 31, 32, I met two people. Right? One of them's from Newcastle, another one's from Sydney. Both really, one's from Sydney is my best friend. Um, his name's Zah, and the one from Newcastle is Jamie. And um, I think you would, you would actually know Jamie, the builder Jamie. Oh, yeah, I think. Yep, it, yeah, yep. no, so um, they taught me everything. Mm-hmm. They taught me everything. They taught me the things that my parents didn't teach me. Yeah. So once I met them two people, they were my mentors without them knowing that they were my mentors, mm. right? And I've actually gone back to both of those. I'm still best friends with those guys. Mm. And I still tell them these days it was them two people that really changed the, the, the projection on my life. And in that, when you connect with those types of people and, and how you were and the behaviours that you had uh, leading up until that point, there must be, and, and I, I think, I think, yeah, I think I believe this, that there's something within us where we can still feel and we have this guidance system, even if it's got all of the, the trauma and, and obviously I don't know this, but in terms of, it's got all these layers and coverings and it's just covered in gunk. Oh, yeah. But there's something within that must like still be able to connect with that that person to go, there's something within me that I can see potentially within them and that's why I have uh, unknowingly picked these people as my mentors. Do you, know, do you know what it was? You would have heard this a million times. You are who you surround yourself with. 100%. There's not a truer statement in the world. Mm-hmm. All right? When I was 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, I was on the streets of southwestern Sydney, Campbelltown, Camden, all around there. Right? All my friends were bikies, criminals. Like They made TV series, The Underbelly Badness, it was about close friends of mine that I was, I grew up with them in, in southwest Sydney. So um, all... All that stuff that I did, all the all the criminal behaviour, all the the wild stuff, riding, you know, I'd ride Harley's. I remember we used to. I was seventeen years of age with a, a Harley. I didn't have another license. Mm. I turned up to do my P plates on it. And they sent me home because you're not allowed. And but I used to ride this Harley at like seven, like sorry, at about three o'clock in the morning at the age of seventeen in the King's Cross with yeah. with other bikies, like with um, you know, with outlaw motorcycle clubs, because um, that's all I knew. Growing up in that area. 
And growing up with not really a home I wanted to be in at the time, that's who I went to. That was my belonging, my community. I loved it and I still do. Yep. Some of the best people I've met were in bike clubs, right? But that's from there from there, and that's that's all I knew. That's who I surrounded myself with because that's all I knew. I grew up in southwest Sydney, right? That's who you knew. Come fast forward till, you know, 30, 35, I started surrounding myself with people I wanted to be like. Mm. When I say I wanted to be like, it wasn't because they were famous or anything. It was because they were very strong men, mm-hmm. very strong-minded, had very good views on life, very motivated and very successful. Very successful. Yeah. Um, and that's the one I wanted. I always had a feeling that I had more to offer than what the job I was doing at the time. And I feel now that, as I said, everything makes sense after, and I'm 43 now, everything's starting to make sense to me. And the biggest thing that happened was them two people. But not only did they come into my life, I listened to them. Yeah. And I would actually seek them out for advice on things. And that's, that's what you have to do. When you were first exposed to these new people around 32 uh were you just editing your own behaviors or was there a verbal i guess accountability from the mentors to check some of these behaviors in ah, a- yeah there was def- i don't think anyone's actually ever pulled me up on something mm. like i don't know if that's because they feel that like- I wouldn't listen or if they feel like it's not their, their place. or um, It was more that I felt that if I didn't do the things that I needed to do to be where I wanted to be, I would let them down. Mm. Right? So an example, a good example is I've been really saving hard to get my uh, another investment property and I've got the, some money down. I'm like, I'm, I'm on Facebook Marketplace. Oh, dude, I could buy this nice muscle car or I could buy that nice Range Rover or I could buy this and buy that. But I'm thinking if I do that, mm. my mate's going to be pissed off <clears> at me because <throat> he knows because he's a property developer and he's he's going to help me with his investment property. Yep. He knows that I'm saving with that. And if he goes, yeah. he he sort of will message me, how are you going? I'm like, yeah, mate, I'm pr- pretty much good to go. If all of a sudden I say, oh, mate, I brought you blood. What are you, what are you fucking doing, mate? Like, that's, mm. So he will say that stuff now. Yeah. But prior to that, it wasn't. It's was, it's probably more now. I guess I was so far behind those people, mm. you know, even like with finances and everything like that, right? Yeah. So I was just always afraid to let them down. And and the other one, Jamie, I would always go to him for advice on like different businesses because yeah. I had so many different ideas that I wanted to do this and do that and do that. And every time I'd do that, I'd go to him and he'd go, mate, it's not for you. So he was the only one that was really honest with me. Yep. You know, it was only about a year ago before I started my mentoring company that he said to me, I rang him up and said, mate, I'm thinking about buying an excavator and, and get back at that. He goes, mate, don't do it. Mm. He goes, you'll hate it. He goes, you'll spend all your time chasing work, chasing money. Um, you won't have a life. You'll, you know, you'll hate it. I'm mm. like, oh, okay. And I was, I'm one of those people who have an idea. I used to just jump into it. Yeah. But now we're all, I'll ring people and ask for advice. As soon as you said that, I listened. Mm. All right. And then went into doing what I do now. Right advice, right? So, <laughs> and that's an it's an interesting thought because really, and then you think of like most parents and other like like people of influence, it is they're really trying to drill down on the verbal accountability, like do this, do this, you shouldn't do that, you should do this. When in an essence, and I think it, it is more around 
and I know from myself and from what you're saying as well, it is that unspoken thing that you're picking up. Yeah. And yeah. then you you guide yourself. And that's where I think the real change happens. But the the parenting side is more around just the surface of a, trying to set the dictate versus how they're behaving. Because really it is it's about you interpreting that person's behavior and you trying to be at their standards. Yeah, exactly. Um when if you're a younger child in your teenage years and your parents aren't anyone you really look up to, look up to or aspire to be like and they're miserable or they're and they're just telling you what to do I, I i can definitely understand why you would be moving in towards the direction that they're trying to put you in yeah it's right because it's, it's they're, the, they're the first people that gave me direction mm. right so growing up in my household i never had any direction i never had any um responsibilities sort of sort of left to to sort of run my own race because of the way my home was you know I had a, a sister who was quite mentally unwell older sister who tried to commit suicide a few times in the home I was you know when I was young so you know stuff like that mm. so I was always left to parent myself mm. I actually can't remember my parents really teaching me anything yeah right um, so as I've gotten older, and what that does though, that creates, as a child, not having those parents look up to, it creates oppositional defiance disorder, right, which I suffer from. So I'm very mm. oppositional to everything. That's why I work very good for myself mm. because when I work for other people, I struggle. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I never had anyone to look up to uh, as, as, a, as a child. I never had anyone to go to for answers. Yep. Um, I was always scared mm. as a child because I didn't feel safe in my home. So with all that, how the hell am I going to grow up and be successful? Yeah. Right? So that's why parenting is so important. Mm. People don't know. And this is the issue that I have. And this is another thing with my mentoring. Not only do I mentor the kids, I mentor the parents on how to parent properly. Mm. Right? They just – it's like, for example, when I was a kid, I, my mum set me up for failure because she would do everything for me. Mm. Her anxieties and her own mental health, <clears throat> right, when this links to the intergenerational trauma that we talk about, my own mum's mental health problems affected me so much, right? Even to the fact that if I had an assignment at school or had something to do at school, she, I wouldn't do it. I hated school. Mm -hmm. She would do it for me. Yeah. Right? So basically I, I start in my psyche, what's that create? I don't fucking have to do anything. Someone else will do it for me if I don't do it. Yeah, no but repercussions at all. No repercussions, no responsibilities. Like, cool, if I don't do it, someone else will. So I don't have to do anything. Mm. So, But then what happens when, you know, so all of a sudden, I've, I've, this is what I've grown up like. And then all of a sudden, I'm 18, 19, 20 in the real world. I've moved out. Mm. I can't do anything. Yeah. I've, my, my life skills at, that, at the age of 20 were probably that of a 14-year-old. Yeah. Because I didn't have those skills. I wasn't taught anything. I wasn't made to do those. I wasn't given those. You know, I was either hit, yelled at, but then never educated. Yeah. So that's why I actually put up a video on my social media page this morning around educate the kids. You can't just tell them they've done the wrong thing. Yeah. Okay, you got to explain to them later on why that's wrong, what to do, what, what could they do differently next time, mm. you know, and made them feel that, hey, you're not in trouble. Mm. You're not in trouble. That's the difference we have to do with parenting. Yeah. You know, I was always in trouble. You shouldn't be in trouble. Yeah. I tell all my clients, especially my young ones, because if I have to pull them up on something, all of it straight away, they think they're getting in trouble because that's what happens at home. Yeah. So you got to explain, hey, I'm not here to, to, to rouse at you or to yell at you or to get you in trouble. I need to teach. Yeah. So that's the underlying thing we have to get across to parents. And I think I come from a, a, an area where it's, it wasn't normal to have parents that did that. 
I know there are a lot of good parents out there too, but also mm. know that there's not enough education for parents. 100%. And that goes back to the original point at the start of the conversation where even around the relationships or making connections, you're not taught how to parent. Uh, there's, there's no training. And I think another part of the problem is that it's for, for a lot of people that the, the struggle with getting ahead in life takes up so much of your mental bandwidth yeah. that they're, they're working overtime, they're struggling in their own job. You never got to a point where you can really make a, whether it be financial or successful or investments or even like just that freedom of stress, yeah. they never get into that point that you could even slip an education model on top of it yeah. because it's just going to go out the window for themselves yeah. too because it's like you can have the best intentions, but then you go work a full day at a job you hate, you're struggling to pay your mortgage, yeah. uh, your health's not great, so your energy's not great, your mental thing's not great. And then you're expected to know how to parent on something that you've never been taught how to do. Yeah. And you're supposed to go home after doing all that all day, right? Your kid's cranky, mm. you're cranky, and then you've got to be able to control your emotions whilst doing that. Yeah. It's very difficult. So that's what I think it's, it's a good point around that there's no education with parents around this. I actually, one of the my future um, ideas is to actually create a parenting program for schools, mm. right? Because... And when I say parenting, I don't mean like when, you, when you're getting ready to have a baby and they teach you how to change a nappy and what to feed it. I mean teach it the stuff that's going to make that child grow up mentally well. Mm. The only way we're going to stop the pandemic, the, the mental health pandemic in this country or in the world, is by teaching young people from as early age as we possibly can on how to raise their young people. Yep. Right. So I'll give you an example of how that will work. My daughter, my oldest daughter, she's having a, a baby and I'll be my first granddaughter in December, mm -hmm. that's our opportunity as a family now to break the cycle because mm -hmm. I have all the information now. Yep. I have all the education on how to raise that child yep. mentally well that I'll pass on to my daughter yep. and she'll raise that. So that's breaking the cycle. Yep. Imagine if we taught all this stuff that I know to young people in schools that are in year eight, year nine, year 10, not about change of nappies and about formula and about, about lifespan development. Mm. When's the most important time to put that blueprint into your child's brain, right? Mm. What to put into that person's brain, what not to put in that person's brain, strategies on how to manage, strategies on how to teach, right? Because when a baby's born, they're, they're a blank canvas, mm -hmm. you're right? It's still very up in the air whether anxiety and mental health and you know all those kind of disorders are learned or genetics. Mm -hmm. um, I feel a lot of it is learnt especially because I've had the experience of it. Like yep. my anxiety pretty much mirrors my mum's anxiety. Mm -hmm. A lot of the young people I work with, their anxieties mirror their parents. Yep. Right? So we have to teach all these young people in schools on how to raise these kids to not have these issues. It's, mm -hmm. And it's quite easy. It's quite easy. And the problem is though, even some of the parents I work with now, I tell them this is what you need to do yep. to get your child right. If you don't do these things now, this is what's going to happen. He's going to grow up possibly um, very highly sexualized in a, in a bad way, you know, isolated, depressed, no friends, struggle to hold down a job, self-harm, all those kind of things that comes with not raising a, a healthy child. Yep. Right? So we can teach kids in schools around attachment disorders, which is another, that's my favorite thing to talk about. Attachment disorder. Talk, Teach about that. We teach just that. So we, what's an attachment disorder? 
So attachment disorder comes in different ways. Have you heard of like when you get into a relationship and they ask you what type of attachment you are? I've heard a little bit about it, but yeah. I don't know. So you have attachment like, uh, and it comes from your childhood, how you're raised too. So safe attachments, which means if you were raised in a really safe environment, you always felt safe, you're going to grow up very calm, mm. not anxious, very chilled, right? Because you always felt safe, mm-hmm. right? If you grew up in an uh, environment like I did, I'm 43. I can't remember the last time my mum and dad told me they loved me. Mm. Well, I can't remember at all ever that happened. I'm 43. Ever mm. as a kid. So I didn't, I didn't feel safe. I didn't feel loved. I didn't have all those things. So the attachment, that creates a really anxious attachment for me, an insecure attachment. So there's, I think it's insecure attachment, anxious attachment, avoidant and safe or secure, right? So nearly every single person you see in a domestic violence relationship, people who struggle to hold down relationships, they will have either an anxious attachment or a insecure attachment. And it comes from not having that safety of the child. Mm-hmm. So think about a jealous, a jealous um, boyfriend, right? Doesn't let his partner do this. Doesn't let his partner do that. Controlling it comes from his childhood. Yeah, he didn't feel safe. He felt rejected every time. He didn't feel like he he was loved. He felt that everyone that came into his life would leave. Right. So they, they think by holding on to these people as mm. tight as they possibly can that that's going to keep that person with them, but it's doing the opposite, right? Yeah. So that's how attachment as a child affects you later on in life. It'll, you won't be able to hold down jobs. You won't be able to hold down relationships because you'll be toxic in a relationship, right? But it also doesn't mean that just because you were, have an insecure attachment or an anxious attachment doesn't mean you have to have that forever. Mm. And the way around that is to learn about what attachment style you are. Right? For example, I'm anxious, insecure. If I go back to my childhood, all makes sense. Right? Go and do some reading on it and it will jump out of the page at you, okay? Yeah. Right? You feel you fear rejection, you've got low self-esteem, you always need reassurance, all those kind of things, right? We all see it in relationships, right? Mm. We've all t- spoken to people where the partner always needs reassurance every five minutes. They're putting photos all over social media two minutes after they've been in a relationship. Mm. All that is a massive red flag of attachment disorders. Yeah. And, and I can imagine a lot of these uh, attachment disorders are difficult to navigate as an individual because, again, it comes back to the point on the mentors where you almost have to take it upon yourself and to, to move yourself out of it, especially in relationships for the big part they're quite secretive like you can yes. have friends and connections and they might have their relationship off to the side and you never really know the inner workings of other people's relationships we protect it yeah exactly so so if that's always hidden and you are a destructive person in relationships the the rest of the world don't really know no. about it it's so it's on you to 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 do it and then to identify that it can be different and, yeah. and like you said starting to learn about it create awareness and and then obviously potentially seeing professionals and that as well. Mate, and the number one thing I've learned, and don't get me wrong, I, I still struggle in the relationship space because I, I struggle to be vulnerable, right? mm. but I'm, I'm getting better at that. But it's um, communication with your partner. Mm. If, you, if you are with a partner who has a safe attachment and you're an insecure attachment, that's going to be a very difficult relationship to manage because they're going to be the ones that don't text back straight away. As in the safe people. Yep. They're going to be the ones that can go out with their friends and not have to contact you every five minutes. 
they're going to be ones that feel comfortable with you having friends that are females, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Right? So to if you can communicate that, if you're an, if you're an insecure attachment, but you're with a safe attachment, if you can communicate with them about your attachment, yep. which ta- which takes you to know what yours is and your education around it, yep. that person who's your partner can then help you with that. Yep. Because when you start to show those signs of anxious attachment or insecure attachment, your partner can remind you, hey, you know you're doing this because of A, B, and C. Yep. That's it. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm getting jealous because of my brain was blueprinted to get jealous because as a child, everyone liked everybody else. I never had any friends, yada, 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 yada. Yep. So attachment's a big thing in all, and not just with girlfriends and boyfriends, Brennan, friendships, mm-hmm. uh, even um, employment, you know, bosses and, and colleagues, right? It's all important. Yeah, so it's definitely more in our like mental health, the mental awareness. It's definitely increased in the in the last five or ten years. Uh, and what comes from that, and I'd, I'd be interested in your opinion on this, is the difference between what happens when something becomes, I guess, when there's more awareness. Is the first step I'm I'm seeing is that people are better at just labeling. So you hear people just say, oh, I'm, I have anxiety. Oh, I have ADHD. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they're labeling. But what for you is the difference between being able to, one, get the proper labeling, don't just self-identify, so to speak. You may, mm. but like you need to educate. There is a bit of uh, a bit of nuance there. But the point in just labeling and just leaning into that label versus then doing the work to move yeah, and and help yourself, and that that's I think social media has played a big play, a big part in that now. Sorry, like everybody is very quick to diagnose themselves with everything, right? Mm. But do you know what? It fucking doesn't matter. Yeah. Do you know why it doesn't matter what diagnosis you've got? Because we don't treat the diagnosis; we treat the behaviour of yep. the diagnosis. So, for example, anxiety will come across just the same as ADHD will come across. Okay, so you treat Whatever it is, if it's that young person struggles to concentrate in class because of ADHD, mm. is it really the ADHD? Is it the anxiety? Doesn't yep. fucking matter. Yep. He's struggling to concentrate in class. Yeah, <laughs> we need to understand why. Yeah, right. He might be eight years old. He's not going to be able to tell you that he can't concentrate in class because every time he goes to sleep at night, he's waiting for his uncle to come in and rape him. Yeah, right. That's and I'm sorry to say them, that of that happens. Right. So. Mm. You, that that's that's a part of it to, to think about as well. So should there be rather than just the labeling and then saying this is what you have, obviously saying professional help is. And the that's case. that's the whole idea. And people get a little bit misunderstood. Well, I guess they misunderstand how it all works, right? Getting a diagnosis is important because then you, at least we know exactly what it is, and then you go and put the strategies in place, which you follow theories and evidence based theories around how to how to work with that. People get a little bit confused around what's the process of, hey, how do I find out what's wrong with me? Mm. Firstly, there's nothing wrong with you. It's just you. Yep. <laughs> but the, people get confused. They go to a psychologist. They don't really understand how it works. The first thing you should really go to is obviously you go to a GP and get a referral. But I'd like to say a, a, most people go to a psychiatrist first because especially the young people that I work with because a lot of their diagnoses are misdiagnosed. Uh misinformation too many doctors involved too many um too many things missed mm-hmm. so if we get a psychiatrist who can then 
look at it in a holistic view and get everyone's opinion on the child reports or the young person. It doesn't matter how old you are. I didn't do most of my stuff till 35. So um, so then they can get a clear picture. All right, okay, these are your diagnoses. These are the behaviours that we're seeing from these diagnoses. They line up. What do we do now? Okay, we take you away from the psychiatrist. They're simply there to diagnose and if you need to, medicate. Then psychologist. Psychologist does all that work. It could be CBT, which is a cognitive behaviour therapy, which just changes thought processes and way to react to things. Work with a psychologist. If you've got a psychologist that you click with, keep them for the rest of your life (laughs) because they're going to be your best friends because they're the one person that you can go into and talk to and can be completely vulnerable. So, for example, my psychologist I've had for 10 years knows everything about me, more than anyone else, right? Same as... Um, the psychiatrist I originally went to who I've now become good friends with, right? Um, so it's important to get a, an idea of exactly what it is and then go and do the psychology work. And then from the psychology, it could be, okay, you need an OT or it could be, hey, as there an adult, it could be, hey, you need to go and do some, um, like for example, a lot of people with anxiety, they avoid they avoid what gives them anxiety, mm. right? It's, you actually need to do the opposite, which is um, actually Exposure. Exposure, right? Exposure therapy. So there's so many levels to how to treat people. But it's actually, in my in my eyes, it's actually quite easy because it's simply finding out what their diagnosis is, finding out what their trauma is, knowing what behaviours and what actions come from all those and then putting strategies in place and people around them to ensure that that person can move forward and grow from that. Right? Yeah. So I use a – you might be interested in this. I use a theory called Bronfen Brenner's ecological system theory right. so basically it's a five different parts of your body and it's a, forgive me for the, getting all the names wrong but there's like your micro system your macro system meso system mm-hmm. exo system mm-hmm. and i forget the other one but it's basically what it does if you google it it's got like a it's one circle in the middle then a bigger circle then a bigger circle then a bigger circle middle circle is you mm-hmm. the immediate environment Yep. Who's in that person's immediate environment, right? Second one, what's in that person's secondary environment, like school, sports, doctors, community? Next circle, what's around that person? If they're living in Australia, they're probably pretty good. Mm-hmm. But think about they could live in a third world country. So that one, there could be no medical, there could be no psychology, there could be no um, government support stuff, right? And then there's a the big picture, which is the world. Right, yep. how much the world impacts a person. Yep. Right. So the important part, if you if you print that out and you put if I put Brendan right in the middle and I look at the middle section, I go, okay, what's in Brendan's life that's good and what does he need? So I look in your little system. You got mum, dad, you have you got Haley, you got a brother, you got your son, you got all these things. So in your immediate circle you've got got everything you need. Yeah. Right? You got a job, you got friends, everything. Right, so that's good. That's why you're doing good, firstly. Yep. Next system, have you got a doctor that you regularly see? Yes. Have you got a job that you regularly go to? Yes. Have you got community participation that you regularly engage in? Yes, you go to a gym, stuff like that. Right. And the bigger one is, is there a war? Now, there could be a war outside, you know, if we could live in a different country. How does that impact that person? Um, have they been, have they not got counsellors? Have they got not got psychologists? So the whole idea of that holistic view is me. I look at that person and I go, cool. We know his diagnosis. We know his trauma. 
We know his lifespan and what's happened. We now have the theory what we're going to use and we just get, grab everybody we need. Mm-hmm. So, okay, he hasn't got a psychologist. Oh, grab a psychologist, put him in there. Yeah. Grab a speech therapist because he struggles with that, put him in there. Or I think this 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 young person may be on the verge of you know the justice system. I grab a youth liaison office from the police, put them in there. Hasn't got a regular GP or a pediatrician or a psychologist, put them in there. So all of a sudden, you get one, you get a child or a young person or even an adult that's got very little supports, right? Mm. So say they had one or two supports, you come in or I come in or do the work that I do. The next minute they've got ten. That's a big change in a person's life. Yeah, right? massive. Yeah, and, and I've, I've actually got an example about a young person I work with. I do a lot of work with him. Um, he's 20. I came into his life nine months ago, right? He actually just got out of jail. He had, I looked at his exosystem, at his uh, ecological systems. Had mum and dad. They weren't, they weren't supportive. They weren't supportive, mum and dad. Had sisters. They don't talk to him. Friends, not one friend. Coordinator of supports hadn't contacted him for four months. Speech therapist hadn't contacted him for four months. Psychologist, uh, he, the one he was going to, had absolutely no idea about autism, which the client had, so we had to get rid of him. So I've come in. I'm like, no wonder this child's just been to jail. Mm. He's got autism. He's got an intellectual disability. He's got tr- massive amounts of trauma and attachment disorder issues, right? So when I've come in, I've gone, no wonder why this young person mm. is in trouble. And let me tell you, this young person is not at any way a criminal, right? He just got caught in a bad situation yep. because he's so vulnerable, mm. <laughs> so vulnerable to be groomed and be, to be taken advantage of, right? So what I did, I came in and went, okay, well, there's no, there's no this, there's no that. There's, they're shit. They haven't done anything. They haven't, why are we going to them for, right? So I get rid of them all. Mm. Next minute, now that young person's got 10 new people around him, and in nine months, he's flying. Yeah, he's amazing. flying, and um, just just that progress there makes it yep. all worthwhile, and it shows the way I do things work. Yeah, you can't just be a, and that's the difference. People, there's support workers, and there's mentors. Yeah, they're complete. I hate when people get them mixed up. Support workers, you know, they might have a little bit of experience, a little bit of study and stuff, but. I really take pride in my role and I take pride that I've done a lot of study and I've got a life experience in it. Yep. And that's the difference between a mentor and a, and a support worker too is that we have to actually have education yep. to be able to make sure that we're doing things with theory back in it as well. Or we're just yeah, we're just And, and, I, and I think that's the key. Like it, it needs to have that educational backing. And you see that a lot on uh, social media and that. Now everyone Everywhere. It, it's just – that they're quickly navigating into these areas and it's still spreading a good message, but yeah. I, I think it can definitely be damaging at times for people who are looking to people who don't have that educational yeah, backing and they're using their guidance and they're taking things that are created as general content and trying to use that as a proper path, exactly, yeah. which is the difference to what you're saying. You're, you're, you have the ability to have this bird's eye view, but not only that, because like a lot of people can identify from a bird's eye view what's going wrong, yeah. but if you don't have the connections and the support systems or know where to put the pieces of the puzzle in yeah. the right spots, then it, then it's just noise. Like Exactly. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a, that's a huge, huge thing. And you've got to have – I think the social media these days, yeah, that's – it's a very positive thing because it's really got the, the mental health and the, the disability and the equality out there, right? 
However, there's still a lot of people who jump on board as a it's sort of like a bandwagon thing, right? It's mm. like you see them all the time. They they post motivational quotes and they might do a funny dance and they've got a thousand followers and mm. people listen to these people, but they don't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> They're basically a gimmick. They're just doing TikTok dances and putting mental health quotes up. Well, right? I think additionally to that, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a challenge in terms of the motivations behind it because you one you're trying to spread a, a message online and i compare this to potentially you with with one of the people you work with when you're driving in the car with that kid when you're spending the time with him in the gym you're that's it it's just you 100% in that moment i'm on you're on you're not trying to think about how you're being evaluated and if that resonates so like and, and this is where the challenge with the algorithms on socials are, is that the the social media is actually curating how you create content yeah. based on how engaging it is and, mm. and that circle. So you might put a message out that may not be the the right exact answer, but you get more engagement. Yes. So you double down on that. Yeah. Versus you with the kid in the car. There's no outside influence. It's no. just what's real. Yeah. And, real that, life. and that's the thing like if the because the game is obviously if you're trying to spread your message you're trying to get more engagement get more comments get more likes get more followers so yeah. you can continue to spread your message and this is where you even see it on youtube is you will see that people have this they'll be proper creators and then what will happen over time they'll end up you'll see people doing reaction videos yeah so yeah. it's like you had a real essence to what you were doing and now you just react. Now it's a gimmick. It's a gimmick. Yeah. And that's the trap. It is. And, and that's why, to be honest, I have absolutely no no inkling or I have no desire to be famous on social media. Mm. <laughs> I have a little social media page just to put stuff up to teach people. Yeah. But it's all theory-based and it's all what I've learned. Mm. I have – you'll never see me put any stupid funny dances or any TikToks or any, you know – baby stuff on my on my social media because I don't care about yeah how I how I look on social media. It's all about getting results for the for the people, right? And social media is very detrimental in that space too. Yep. Um because too many young people think that they can take help off social media by just following people because a person might have um a million followers and a great set of legs or a great bum or something. So they, yeah. they take stuff of them. But truly it's, they're not the people you should be taking advice off. You need to go and seek proper advice and take – go and don't think social media is your answer yep. to, to getting better. Go yeah. and get proper help. 100%. And it can definitely be a, a small trigger to create a bit of awareness. Yeah. Oh, the, so the awareness around that, brand, the social media is the best thing that's happened yep. with mental health, right? Yeah. Because without it, you never used to see it on Channel 7 News or you never used to see it on ABC or anything, Jeff. So now that it's everywhere, it's great. Yeah, it's great. And I'll never be negative towards social media in that aspect. Yep. But I do see a lot of people who have a detrimental effect on people who are already struggling. Yeah, and, and the way I see it, and I'm not huge on my activity on socials by any means, but it's it's a really it's a really tough place to navigate because like you said, there is a great message within there and the awareness side of things is fantastic. Uh, but what it is and the way I see it is it's like going to a party with a hundred people and 95 of them are rat bags and five yeah. are great. And you have to navigate that noise yeah. and you can't 
extract the five people yeah, in social media. That's a good, good analogy. That one. Every time you go there, you have to deal with the 95% yeah. every single time. Yeah. You can't get that exposure without. So I was like, all right, I've got to go meet my five great friends, yeah. but always with 95 bad yeah. people. Like, so it's just like, it's too much. Yeah, it is. And that's a great way to put it too. Yeah. And it's so, yeah, it's um, social media is so impact. Like all my young people that I work with, they're addicted to social media. Mm. So that's another yep. point that, you know, creates a whole other aspect because half the time I'm with my clients, they'll, they'll show me stuff about their social media or about, and I'll say, and then I have to give, but it's actually, that's a good part of social media because they'll show me things. They'll go, yeah. oh, what do you think of this? Or what do you think of that? The connection, the sharing. Yes, but also I then give them my opinion on that, which is usually different from theirs. Yeah. It's a different perspective on things. It's like, yep. for example, one will show me something. You go, oh, what do you reckon of this girl? You know, he's 20. He's trying to find someone to date. I'm like, oh, mate, she sounds lovely. Yeah. And she'll say, oh, she's a bit fat. Yeah. And I'll say, and I'll, so then that's a great little in. I'll go, hey, mate, like, let's talk about that. Mm. Because then I unpack that with him that he hates it mm. when people judge him. Yeah. On the way he dresses, because I know that, that he hates that. Yeah. But then I'm explained, we'll see how you're doing the same thing to that person. Yeah. So we don't need to do that. So then I, I go, well, and you don't know that person's background. You don't know that person's life. Mm. Um, I said, would you like people to judge you on just the way you dress? Because I know yeah. you don't. Right. So that sort of opens up a different dialogue, which is good for that kind of stuff too. Yeah. So it can be positive as well. Yeah, absolutely. I've already had to talk to you. Okay. Let's take a break there. Uh, let's let, let we'll wrap it up. So I'll cut it there. All right. So, uh, I, I know, um, I'll just take a little pause just by. So I know you got to get out of here and we do need to get into a lot of your backstory yeah, and everything as well. So I'm super keen to get you back on in the next little bit and we can go deep into it and, and talk about your experiences, especially in the younger years, how you've introduced things as well. I'm also very, very keen to hear about, a, a lot of the strategies that you use personally mm. around managing anxiety yep. uh, as well. Uh, but just to end off today's episode, uh, would you mind just telling the people what your current business is and where they can find some of your content online as well? Yeah, f firstly, I'm looking forward to the, to the next one because I do have, as I said, I've got a lot. I haven't even touched the surface on, on my life yet and how I got to what I'm doing. Um, so basically at the moment though, I've got Elevate uh, Mentoring, which is E L E. VA8, the yep. number, mentoring on uh, Instagram. Yep. And um, basically that's my mentoring company where I work with young people. I uh, also have the disability support service, which is called Intensive Support Service, where we have support staff who I oversee and I mentor them on how to mentor their clients the same way I do. Um, and the speed dating, which will be starting soon, which I'm really excited about. That's the one I'm most excited about for the NDIS. Awesome. And then by the time we have you back on, you'll probably have that up and running. Hopefully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully. Awesome, mate. Well, uh, thanks for your time today. Thanks for the conversation. It was awesome. I uh, really appreciate your perspective and how far you've come and that you're continuing to live this great life. And now you have that ability to help others. So I think that's amazing. No, th thanks for having me on. It's been um, it's the first time I've done a podcast, so it's a little bit daunting, but as I said, I've got plenty more to talk about yet. Awesome. Love it. All right. <laughs> thanks, mate. Thank you.